Good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, the sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel, page 711 in the, in the church Bibles. We're going to read the opening verses of that Gospel. Um, as most of you know, we've been working through Mark's Gospel week by week, and so here we are today at chapter 6. And one more, after one more week, we'll take a break and, and do other things in light of the Christmas holiday, but... Um, We have at least this sermon and, Lord willing, uh, next sermon in Mark's Gospel. Well, let's hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 6, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this... The carpenter, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Amen. Let's pray together, asking God to help us. No list of sins we have not done, no list of virtues we pursue, no list of those we are not like can earn ourselves a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to us. We are sinners through and through. Our only hope of righteousness is not in us, but only you. Father, thank you that you save from sin only by substitution. And so we ask that all of the plans and purposes you have for us now will be brought to maturity as your word is preached. Father, I know my need, our need is greater than we know. Therefore, we ask that we would not listen or speak in our own strength. Rather, we would look to you now for full supply in order that the Lord Jesus Christ will be set before us, that we may believe him, we may obey him, and enjoy his salvation. Grant us faith, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there are only two accounts in the whole of the Gospels where we find the Lord Jesus Christ amazed. Some translations say stunned or astounded. That, that might actually be better. Each account has to do with faith in him. One was the great faith of the centurion. The other was the lack of faith, as Mark records for us here, in Jesus' own hometown. You may remember the circumstance of the centurion's faith was such that he said, Jesus, you don't need to come over. You just say the word and my servant would be well. And this amazed, stunned Jesus. The circumstance of his hometown was such that Jesus, the Son of God, right? The Son of God, mind you, had just finished preaching the word in the synagogue and they don't believe him. In fact, to be more accurate, they do not believe in him. And Jesus, of course, is astonished. And again, the NIV, amazed. So if you would, just follow this line of thought with me. They don't believe in him. Consequently, you'll see this in verse 3 if your Bible's open. They don't believe in him. And then they begin this kind of verbal demotion of Jesus, giving rise for them to take offense at him. And therefore, they reap the ramifications of their unbelief as a community, which results in verse 5, Jesus doing so little for them as he's amazed at their unbelief. Okay, so they don't believe in him and his sermon and his hymn. And then then they take offense at him. And in turn, he does so little for them. Amazed at their unbelief. 
Now, if Jesus Christ is amazed about something, because it rarely happens, then it ought to be a matter of tremendous importance to us. To be sure, one of the lessons that Jesus is going to give the 12 disciples that he's soon going to send out, because you see, these six verses are set in the context of the next six verses, where we see that Jesus is going to send out 12 in groups of two. So, much time then has passed since Jesus called his disciples to follow him in chapter 1. And then a little less time has passed since he took 12 of them on the mountainside where he called them to be with him in order that they would go out for him and preach him. And that's really, really important. He called them to be with him because they were going to go out for him because they were called to preach him. Subsequently, as Jesus preaches Jesus in his hometown and as Jesus sends out the 12 to preach Jesus from town to town, The lesson that Jesus wants them to learn is essentially this. What I'm experiencing now, this rejection, this unbelief, you need to be ready for rejection and unbelief when you go out. If they reject me, they're going to reject you. And what this does then is points to this amazing principle that is out throughout Mark's gospel. The mission of Jesus Christ moves amidst unbelief. Again, the mission of Christ moves moves amidst unbelief. In fact, if you look at verse 11, we didn't read it, but if you look there, he basically gives them a line to walk down when rejection comes. Inference, it's going to come. And essentially, Jesus says, shake off the dust off the feet of the ta- your, off your feet from the town. And loved ones, you know this if you've been here. Unbelief is everywhere in the first five chapters of Mark. Jesus' family does not believe him. The religious leaders do not believe him. The religious people do not believe him. The crowds don't believe him. Unbelief is everywhere. And yet the mission moves on and the kingdom grows. But it grows with the most unlikely group of people who believe on Jesus in the midst of all that unbelief. And what was true then is equally true now. In an article not so long ago from the New York Times, it had the line, Many scientists view outspoken religious commitment as a sign of mild dementia. Okay? Many scientists view outspoken religious commitment as a sign of mild dementia. And you know, for the life of me, I can't remember who wrote the article. But, but anyway, oh, you're much better than the first service. Good for you. Pat yourself on the back. Good job. In other words, what they were saying was, this is all crazy talk from a group of people who are slowly losing their mind. (laughs) Okay, which takes us then to our first point. They don't believe in him. You see it there in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown with his disciples. Okay, first off, two questions from verse 1. Where is the there that Jesus left? And where is Jesus' hometown? This may help you. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He dies outside the walls of Jerusalem. His ministry hub was Capernaum, and this is the place, verse 1, where Jesus left. So Capernaum is the there, and his hometown, the place where he was raised, was Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't born there. He was raised there. Verse 1 then, he left Capernaum, fill in the blanks, and he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. And Nazareth then was the place where Jesus grew up, the place where he was taught his numbers, and he was taught his colors, And he was taught his manners and his trade. No doubt everyone knew Jesus because Nazareth was a very, very small place, 60 acres in size. And scholars tell us around 500 people in population at that time. And most of us know that it's nice to go home. For some people, it's nice to go home. 
for other people that it's not. If you're here this morning and it's not nice to go home, Jesus can sympathize with you. He knows that, that feeling. So he's there for a bit. In verse 2, you see there that it's the Sabbath. And we know from the gospel record that Jesus does everything well. So he kept the Sabbath. The worship of God and the company of the people of God was a priority to Jesus, the Son of God. But, again, not only did he keep the Sabbath, but he's teaching in the Sabbath in the synagogue. So what's he teaching? That's a good question. Well, some say this account here in Mark chapter 6 is the same as Luke chapter 4. And if that's true, then this is what we know. We know the text that Jesus preached from, and we know, in essence, the words that he said. This was the text, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, which begins, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. That was his text. Well, what is... What was his teaching? Well, in a nutshell, Mark, or Luke records for us, Jesus said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the me here. This Old Testament text that I just read is about me. Okay, some say that. But others say, well, you know, we don't really know what passage Jesus taught from in Mark chapter 6. But of course, you see there, Mark chose to tell us, or excuse me, not to tell us of the text. And so, we don't know what he said. All we know is the outcome. Now, the reason why I'm taking you through all this is because we really need to know this. Those in the synagogue are clearly rejecting what Jesus, the Son of God, is teaching. And we know that his teaching is from God. I mean, there is no mistake in his teaching at all. Therefore, their unbelief is based on what he was teaching in the synagogue. So in one sense, it's kind of important. So what's he saying? Now bear with me because we need to know this. We know from Mark chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus was proclaiming the good news of God. This is why God sent him. In fact, it says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Mark 1, 1 14. In other words, he was preaching good news, right? Good news. You do not have to save yourself from sin's power and from sin's penalty. Rather, good news, God has sent you a saving substitute. I'm sent by God to be the sacrifice for your sin. Repent and believe. We also know from Luke chapter 4, verse 43, that Jesus said, this is after the end of his talk in the synagogue, I must proclaim the good news Good tidings, uh, uh, the Greek word there, the, the root of it is euangelion, the, the glad tidings, gospel of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that's why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Mark chapter 1, verse 39 affirms that same little phrase, he was preaching in the synagogues. Okay, now, are you with me? Everywhere Jesus went, open air and in the synagogue, he was proclaiming the good news the gospel, and the need for people to repent and believe on him, right? He's the only way to God. He's the only way to enjoy peace with God. He's the only way that you'll never know condemnation from God. Now, what the people in Nazareth were used to was not that. Their lessons were essentially uh, self-help, moral, uh, pull-up-your-sock sermons with, with the law as its kind of fuel. You do this, and you do that, and in some cases, we'll tell you how to do this and that. 
and things will be good between you and God. But if you don't, then you won't have any basis of acceptance with God, which then would carry out in their relationships with each other. But back, if you don't do this, if you don't keep this, you won't enjoy acceptance. Now that's a problem in the New Testament. In fact, listen to what Mark wrote, the, excuse me, Paul wrote the church in Rome, chapter 10. This is what he said. They, this is the Jewish people, they don't understand that Christ has died to make them right with God. Instead, they're trying to make themselves good enough to gain God's favor by keeping the Jewish laws and customs. But that is not God's way of salvation. They don't understand that Christ gives to those who trust in Him everything they're trying to get by keeping His laws. He ends all of that so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Question, what is the problem here in chapter 6? Unbelief. Now, we also need to know that when Jesus preached himself in the synagogues, he was using the Old Testament scriptures as a source. Because in synagogue worship, the usual pattern was there was a reading from the law and there was a reading from the prophets. And the reading was not chosen by the speaker, rather it was prearranged by the leaders in the synagogue. So we know that Jesus was, was preaching from an Old Testament text. And so we ask, okay, what was he teaching from the text? Well, he was finally teaching the text proper. As a son of God, we can be sure of this, which means Jesus was preaching himself from the law and from the prophets. In a phrase, Jesus was preaching the gospel from the Old Testament because Jesus says that's the only thing that we can really truly understand about the Old Testament. So we must find Jesus in the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus preached himself from the Old Testament. And you see, that's why I took you down this line. A little long, I understand, but this is why I took you down this line. Here is what the people in Jesus' own hometown were rejecting. They were rejecting the free grace of God given in Jesus. They were rejecting the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures right in front of them. Remember, they had been learning to be accepted by God and how they could in turn relate to God and know peace with God came only based on a person's willingness and ability to keep the law of God and all the bells and whistles that the scribes and the Pharisees would add to the law of God. So it was through their deeds, through keeping God's laws, how they would know God and enjoy his acceptance. And of course, we know that there is nothing wrong with God's law, and there's certainly nothing wrong with keeping God's law. However, the proper use of God's law involved far more than just obedience particularly the moral law, which was meant to expose and condemn. We say it here all the time, a dirt-revealing mirror in order that they might humble themselves and cry out to God to save them and enjoy free forgiveness, worshiping God along the way. Now, did the law inform people how to live a holy life? You bet it did. But it never provided the power to live that holy life. Far from it. Instead, in love, right? Romans 14, the law is love. In love, it revealed the inability of a man or a woman, any man, any woman, to keep it. Unless, of course, you are willing to lie about it, right? Pharisees, and give the impression that you are one of the few high holies who's doing it right. In fact, you're doing it so good, it's not 
24-7, but it's 25-8. That's how great you are. God requires absolute perfection absolutely all the time. So there's this huge gap in the kind of instruction they were receiving at the time. And of course, only Jesus could fill it. And what do you know? What do you know? Because Jesus remembers everyone and everything. He goes home to this wee little place. And he opens up the Old Testament. And he teaches it proper. Repentance and faith in me. That's the thing that puts a person right with God. Listen to your Bible, John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Jesus said, this is to the Jewish people, you pour over the scriptures because you presume that by them you possess eternal life. These are the very words. Remember, their scripture was the Old Testament. These are the very words that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. In other words, you know, paraphrase, it's great that you read your Bibles. That's great. It's needed. But your obedience can't give you life. Only Jesus gives you life because Jesus is life. Right? He's going to Calvary to pay a debt that we could never pay so that we could receive a righteousness that we could never achieve. Remember Paul in Galatians 2, if righteousness could be gained by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now, not through yet. If you know your Bible and you're thinking hard right, Neil, now this is a big deal because this is a constant problem. For example, in the book of Acts, and the pastoral epistles, one of the main things that Paul was telling Timothy in the pastoral epistles, and Paul and others who were preaching and dialoguing in Acts, the theme was the law of God was a load neither the Jew or the Gentile was able to bear. And of course, some Jewish teachers are so way off in their understanding of God's law, Paul tells Timothy, you've got to correct these men. In fact, you've got to stop them. Whole families are being ruined because these men are teaching things they have no basis to teach. Morality is not the starting place with God. Humility, repentance, honesty, and faith in Jesus is. So again, yes, the law shows us how a holy life is supposed to be lived, but it cannot provide the power to live it. Instead, it simply reveals our inability to keep it, living up to God's perfect standard that we might humble ourselves, cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus and enjoy his free salvation so that we relate to him always through his finished work on the cross. And if you think about it, if you think about it, the law of God's chief aim is similar to the Holy Spirit to show us our sin, to drive us to Christ, and the sufficiency of his grace. This is 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our holiness. Christ is our redemption. In order that Christ will be our only boast. That's it. Christ will be our only boast. So in our common conversations. In our religious conversations. At the end of the thing. Right? Christ. Christ. Even as it comes to me, I didn't go home for Thanksgiving, but I called home for Thanksgiving. And my mom, God bless her, she does this every time. This is her thing. She goes, oh, Joe, I love you so much, which is nice, of course. And she says, Joe, you're, you've always been such a good boy. And you have such a good wife. And you have such good gifts. I, I never worry about you, Joe. So every time she's saying that, I'm like, Mom, it's only because of Jesus. Joe, you're such a good boy. Mom, it's only because of Jesus. You're going to get me in trouble with Jesus, Mom, because I'm going to start believing this stuff. 
At the end of our conversation, Christ, if it's all good, Mom, okay, great. Christ is my only boast. Period. Period. That's why I tell you again and again, self-help religion, whether it's the misuse of the law or the, or the cutting and pasting the portions of the New Testament, detached from gospel power is an intolerable burden that drives most people to discouragement, some people to despair, others to pride so they can point out what they and not we have accomplished or simply like the Pharisees to hide their sins from the public domain. Like the Pharisees, sure, and apparently like the people of Nazareth, driving a wedge between humanity and God and, of course, between people and God. I wrote this this morning. Gosh, in Nazareth, it must have been a terrible place to live. They do a whole lot of talking and judging in their unbelief. And at the end there, Jesus just walks over to the other towns and villages and preaches the gospel. And so will you notice at the end of verse 2, and many who heard him were amazed... That's not a good amaze. In fact, it's a, kind of a bad translation, I think. The word may, amaze there in the Greek is ekplesiso. It has the idea of outwardly struck with panic, shock at a loss at his teaching. Why? Because for so long they had not been given the right understanding of the Scriptures, even though they handled the Scriptures week by week. And I'm sure they were going, well, we're doing this right. We're doing this right. We're doing this right. And now it's like, we're not doing it right. Oh my, that's what that passage means. It's so clear. Why didn't we see it before? We were wrong for a long time. And therefore, the teaching of Jesus Christ came to them, as J.I. Pecker said about sitting under the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones, it came to them as a force of electric shock. That's the sense of the word. Struck with panic. Years of the same old nonsense, going to the synagogue, reciting the Shema, and so on. And here comes the Son of God with glad tidings. Relax. Humble yourselves. Repent. And the listeners found his teaching too much for them in view of what they had been taught. And as we'll find out now, what they already knew about him. And that takes us to our second point. They took offense at him. And you see that there in verse 2. On the Sabbath, he begins to teach in the synagogue. They were astonished. Where did he... Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom? Mighty works. Is not this the, is this not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and so on there? That might be new to you that Jesus had brothers, stepbrothers, and stepsisters. And they took offense at him. Okay, so let's put ourselves in their shoes. Your long understanding of God and the scriptures is found wanting. You don't like it. It's beneath you to cry out to God for mercy. And Jesus is more likely telling them, you need to cry out to God for mercy. You've been towing the line a long time, and you found out that the line you've been towing, completely wrong. You need Jesus. What do you do? Well, you could repent and believe, or you could do what the people here do. They drag the character and the person of Jesus through the mud. I mean, what do they do? They close ranks. This is the dark side of a small town mentality, right? Close ranks. Isaiah said it like this. He was despised and rejected by man. Despised. He is unworthy of our consideration and respect. Rejected. He is found lacking. It's not us. It's him. And then you see this flurry of questions in response to his teaching, mind you. And there's this kind of downward succession aiming near the end for his humiliation. So they start with his authority, verse 2b. Where did you come up with this stuff? Where did he get it? 
What's this wisdom that has been given to him? Remember the Pharisees said earlier that all the divine power that Jesus was using, it's demonic power. So what they were saying here, they weren't saying that he has authority to say and do the things that he's doing from God. They're just saying, we're not really sure where it comes from. And beyond that, he even does miracles. You know, like miracles, touching. And I think that's why right after that, it's verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter's son? So, that, so they question his authority. And then they begin to question his identity, his family. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Translation, low-level tradesman who works with his hands, a manual labor, because the word there is not the usual word we'd understand for carpenter. This is a little bit of a hit. He's just a manual labor. What's he doing, doing all that stuff and saying all that stuff? And as if they saved their best insults for last, verse 3, isn't this Mary's son? But this is what you need to know. It was Jewish custom, whether a person's father was dead or alive, to refer to a man as being um, the son of his father. That was the custom. So what people say is, well, maybe Joseph is dead by now. Mary's not a, now a widow, and that's why they said the son of Mary. She's a widow. I am very confident that's not what's happening here. This whole scene is based on the fact that they take offense at Jesus and they're trying to justify their unbelief by questioning his authority and now the real dig, uh, the legitimacy of his birth. So when they refer to Jesus as the son of Mary, they were trying to cast shame and humiliation on his mother and on him and on his family. Because it raises doubt about who's his, who's his father, his legitimacy. And you know, if you read the Gospels, one of the lines the Pharisees used on Jesus was, look, we know where that guy comes from, and we know where this guy comes from, but we don't know where you came from, Jesus. Because we know Joseph's not your father. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows. Now, we're not going to say it, but your mother was a little loose. Because we don't know who your father is. Your birth, Jesus, is probably illegitimate. There's a terrible word for that. So at Christmas time, when we sing the song, What Child Is This? It has the line, haste, haste to bring him laud. I didn't know what laud meant. It means glory and applause. Haste, haste to bring him glory and applause. And then it says, the babe, the son of Mary. We can have a whole new appreciation for that when we sing it. What the people of Nazareth meant for evil. William Dix, the author of the song, He meant it for good. And people are singing it all over the world. And so he ends by telling us Jesus had four brothers and sisters as if to say, we know your family. We know where you came from. Listen carefully. They reduce him to elevate themselves to justify their unbelief. Okay? They reduce him. It's such a human thing. Reduce the individual to elevate the self to justify unbelief. You come back into your, our town with your shocking sermon and all these mighty miracles that we heard about, but we know your mom and we know your brothers and, and we know the circumstances of your birth and your family doesn't even believe in you, insinuation. Why should we? Now listen, they were not telling lies about Jesus, were they? They were just taking the truth and just using it and manipulating it to hurt, to cause pain, 
to justify their unbelief, to defend their unbelief. Uh, one person said to build a wall of commonness around Jesus, looking down on him and making judgments on him to justify their unbelief. I, I wrote this down this morning. Why do, what do people who relate to God through their own obedience do? Okay, What do people who relate to God through how good and how hard they're working for Jesus, what do they do? Well, they become like the Pharisees. They, they judge and they criticize and they say evil things. Wicked things. And it might make them feel good for a minute, but only for a minute. No human has the right to do what the people of Nazareth were doing to Jesus. It happens, but it shouldn't. Isaiah, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, and he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Or as John says in his prologue, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And of course, Mark's gospel affirms what John wrote in his gospel. Final point, they they don't believe in Christ They take offense at Christ, and the outcome is that Jesus is amazed at their unbelief, and he does so little for them, right? Don't believe in him, take offense at him, he does so little for them. Verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household, and he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Well, the the parable in verse 4 is well known. The point is pretty clear. He does so little for them, right? His own family is deprived of the mightiness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. His whole hometown deprived of the the mightiness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Unbelief. Unbelief. And we have to ask the question, what about us? What about us? Their resentment to the gospel proved to be their detriment. Jesus had already said, with the measure we use would be the measure he uses for us. And that was true of Nazareth. For where people do not trust Jesus, Jesus would do so little for them. And I don't want you to think it's a power issue on Jesus' end, right? It was the hardness of their heart. They trusted themselves. They trusted in their old, tired, dead lines of of believing and behaving. And that kept things in unbelief. And frankly, it kept things small. Thus, verse 5, only a few healings were done. Small number were done. Why? Why? It would be morally and spiritually inconsistent that where the kingdom of God is rejected, that the king would give new life and joy there. And their unbelief prevents them from believing the truth that everything flourishes under God's loving rule. That everything flourishes under gospel truth. That's the way of the kingdom. So these people do not come to enjoy belief in Christ, His free forgiveness, His mighty miracles, because Jesus will not force Himself on a hostile and skeptical people. Right? So He wasn't in town to do tricks. He wasn't in town to impress. He was in town to rescue people from sin, from eternal damnation. And to bring his saving power. Because he possesses absolute power. But he does not work to simply feed a superficial curiosity. To prove himself to the skeptic. To say, uh, please like me. Those who do not listen to his words will never enjoy the wonders of his works. 
So again, when Mark says, verse 5, Jesus could not do many miracles, uh, don't, don't think, you know, the Christmas time, if you believe in Santa, then Santa will come. But if you don't believe in Santa, you know, that kind of, what was the movie, The Elf? Uh, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is by singing loud for all to hear. And then they sang real loud and Santa came and his sleigh was good and everything was fine. It's not that. <laughs> it's not that. Sorry about that. <laughs> It meant that it would be morally and spiritually inconsistent that where the kingdom of God is rejected, that the king would give new life and joy. You see, the people of Nazareth, they were doing their religious duty. But there was no life in them because there was so much unbelief in them. And the familiarity with Jesus just simply got in the way. It bred contempt. And as a, as a result, unbelief is everywhere, and Jesus' power is barely there. Hence, verse 6, where Jesus says, in effect, I am shocked at you. I'm shocked that you don't believe in me. I'm shocked that you're rejecting grace. I, I'm shocked that my power and my goodness, uh, you would not have nothing to do with it. And you people had a peculiar advantage that other places didn't have. I grew up here. You watched me grow. And you watch me, in effect, do nothing wrong ever. So he's shocked because Jesus knows we're unbelief. What it'll do, it brought the curse, the fall on humanity. It brought the flood and unbelief in the Son of God to this day and past this day. It capitulates people into eternal hell. Divine judgment. Unbelief activates divine judgment. It's a wicked force, this unbelief. Just one application. Would it, would it not be on the last day, the day of judgment? Would it not be amazing, shocking, heartbreaking for us to sit in the company of others week by week and find out that all they were doing was sitting and not believing? Wouldn't it be horrible if all we were doing was sitting and not believing? If that's you, don't let this moment pass. To that same end, some of you might say, well, look, you don't know what I've done. I've done some really bad things. In fact, you don't even know what I'm feeling right now. It's pretty bad. Jesus Christ would tell you that your unfitness is your fitness, right? Your unfitness is your fitness. You finally realize you're sick and you need a doctor. Well, guess what? Jesus is the physician. He's here. Just believe you're spiritually sick and go to him. He turns no one away. Others of you say, look, I have no goodness in me at all. Jesus has all the goodness you need. Again, whoever comes to me, he will never cast away. Final application then. I said one, I'm just going to add two. The final application is for us Christians. Everything flourishes under the gospel. Everything flourishes under his loving rule. Do we believe Jesus? Do we order our lives under his benevolent rule? Do we believe he has power to save people? Do we tell those people that he might save them? I came across this at the end of my studies. It's the, actually the end of a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on this text. And listen to what he said. My dear friends, some of you who have been sitting here for years and yet you don't believe, you are a marvel to me. Count you that little? You are marvels to many in your family who long since expected to see you on the Lord's side. You are a wonder to devils, 
Even they cannot make it out. The power of their spells has amazed even them. You are a wonder to the damned in hell. With what welcome electricity would they avail themselves of an opportunity to escape from misery, and yet you trifle with such opportunities? You are a marvel to the angels who would have rejoiced over you if you had returned to your Father, and who wonder that you stand at the cross's foot from Sunday to Sunday, and yet doubt the power of Him who bled on it. You are marvels to the Lord Himself. One of these days, unless you repent, you will be a wonder to yourselves. For this text will come true to you if God prevents it not. Behold, you despisers and wonders and perish. But I hope better things of you, even things which accompany salvation, though I thus speak. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. He came to his town, and his own did not receive him, but to as many who received him. To those who believe in his name, he gave the power to become the sons and daughters of God. And Jesus Christ will give you that power today. If you turn to him in humble, believing, repenting faith. May God grant us this grace this morning. Let's pray as we prepare for the table. And if those who will be serving, if you would please come forward now. Oh, Father, you treat us so well. In Christ, we have all that we need and all that we will ever need. May we be given the grace as a congregation to enjoy that salvation fully, believing on Christ. Amen.